welcome back to the Be A Better Ally podcast. On today, we have Joel, who is an instructional coach working at an international school. This episode is part of our series where we think about ways to potentially reframe what have been thought for so long as difficult or perhaps political conversation and start to just simply think of them as necessary dialogue. I am Joel and I work as a learning specialist and instructional coach in an international school. I've been working in education for 18 years, mostly in the classroom, leading learning with kids, as well as in professional learning, accreditation, curriculum and assessment. Um, I have worked in international schools in the Philippines, China, Belgium, and currently here in Malaysia. I go by the pronouns he, him, and his. I also would like to recognize and honor the thinking work and activism of the many different individuals, um, educators, leaders, coaches, mentors, schools and organizations around the world, those that are visible and are invisible, as well as authors and resources that are too many to mention that have shaped our thinking in support of framing our conversation today. And while the recent surge of conversations, it is easy to intellectualize racism through books and chats and book clubs and whatnot. And as we frame our conversations today, I would like us to situate our privilege and bring to mind people's ever-present lived experiences in racism as manifested in poverty, violence, abuse, discrimination, and systemic injustice and oppression that might be beyond what our place of privilege can fathom. The opinions here are my own and do not necessarily represent the thinking of my school or any organization. As well, this conversation is not coming from a place of expertise, but from a place of personal reflection a place of partnership and continuous learning. Trisha, thank you so much for having me here today. I'm so humbled by your invitation and grateful for the space you have provided for many of us. This is a privilege and honor and, and a shared responsibility. The, the honor, Joel, truly is mine. I, I really appreciate you giving up the time and putting in the thought um, and, and sharing some of your lived experiences. And that's sort of what I would like to start with here is just to ask you to think back to your life, not as a, a leader of learning, but as a student. What can you tell us in terms of your memories of being taught about how to engage in so-called difficult conversation? Thinking about it, like difficult conversation, it actually triggers a lot of stress already in itself, you know? Um, initiating and engaging in difficult conversations were not taught when we were kids. We were taught to avoid it though, and it was perceived as confrontational, it was perceived as trouble. For example, as a student back then, asking a teacher is to, is to challenge an authority. Um, so that's an example of what would be a difficult conversation that you want to avoid, that I think we avoided when we were kids. We also think about it and experience it as an engagement riddled with adversities. We try to carefully navigate ourselves to ensure safety and care for fragility, often editing ourselves, withholding our authentic voice, which hinders us from speaking our truth and living authentically. To engage in difficult conversation, I think for me, felt like it was to endanger relationships. As a result of avoiding it, we also avoid the path to genuine and growth-producing conversations that honor diverse perspectives, uncover biases and presumptions, and dignify identities. It leads to a lack of shared understanding and innovation and generative thinking and reparations, which are some of the fundamentals in relationships, reconciliation and healing. 
in avoiding difficult conversations, we are sometimes left with ideas that are unsaid, ideas that could have been said and are eerily suspended in our bedside tables, keeping us awake at night because we intentionally or subconsciously silence ourselves and turn away from each other due to the fear of being vulnerable, to break relationships or to challenge power structures. As an example, I'm thinking about governments in education. We see lethargic and sluggish changes to some of them because we see activism, revolution, protests, calls for change as threats to power. And to the insecure power holders that are linchpins to these power structures, they are indeed threats. They are uncomfortable. Our gatedness, exclusivism, control, internal and systemic ego systems lie at the very heart of why we refuse to listen and engage in difficult conversations. We sometimes miss to think of these difficult and courageous conversations offered and initiated by communities and by critical friends and stakeholders as opportunities for reflection, for new learning, for rebirth, in action-oriented transformation. I, I really appreciate that you, that you sort of started that by talking about how as a student you felt not only were you not taught about it, but you were taught to avoid it because I think that happens for teachers too. You know, you, know, you were talking about the student perspective, but I do think as educators, we get that message loud and clear when administration or leadership are not interested in um, doing things differently or reflecting on some hard realities. Um, you know, and I, I think the, the power dynamics that you mentioned, they, you know, they can sort of surprise us in schools. I, I think sometimes the idea of, um, especially as an educator, all of the different types of bosses that we, we have, um, you know, it's so, so nuanced. So I'm wondering, in your training to be an educator, did anything shift or rethink the way that um, you would manage power dynamics or that you would sort of manage those conversations that, you know, get put into quote unquote political conversations or again, difficult conversations? Did your, did your teacher education sort of equip you with some tools that maybe your education as a, as a younger learner did not? I think in my bachelor's degree that would, there was, there's a lot of socio-emotional foundational work that's being done in terms of supporting us in how we manage those conversations, but not really to initiate and lead those difficult conversations. Hmm. We were also deeply moved by the stories of alumni groups and educators across the world in our recent conversations who have been with us in international schools and have experienced racism and discrimination and isolation as intentional and unintentional repercussions for systems because they don't see themselves visible enough in the contexts cultures and literature for a system. Some of them were once the children in our classrooms who were reading books with white characters in their own white privileged lives, marking their skin colors against the character's whiteness, thereby questioning their identity, self-worth, and visibility, and not seeing themselves as part of that world. These stories were read aloud by white teachers whose semblance of the individual identities, lived experiences, and unconscious biases would have opaqued their deep, genuine intentions to honor students' individual identities. Therefore, I think a more compelling need for diversity in hiring. Teachers' lives, values, and actions are the children read alouds. 
Yeah, you know, I, I've really, I've been thinking a lot about how common it is to hear in, at a job fair in the hiring process, this notion of good fit and somebody is a good fit or not. And just scratching at that phrase and really questioning what so many different international schools mean when they've talked about good fit. And is it just, you know, this person looks like, sounds like, comes from the background that I am familiar with. Um, you know, I kind of, I, I think maybe schools hopefully are reconsidering this idea of, do I want someone who will simply fit in on campus or do I want somebody who's going to come in and expand upon, you know, the, the way that we hope to stretch conversations around identity? I agree with you, Trisha, in the area of schools thinking about diversifying their hire as opposed to best fit. I'm thinking about the whole idea of hiring and asking the question, what might be something that this person is different that can challenge the way we think? It is encouraging to know and hear educational leaders and organizations explicitly diving deep on race, power and privilege, social justice, linguistic justice and identity affirmation in our recent conversations around the world. The Association of International Educators and Leaders of Color and Diversity Collaborative and a few others have already been doing deep dive in this work. International education organizations such as the Council of International Schools in no time after we lobbied the petition committed and took action, engaged many of us in a conversation and in the spirit of genuine partnership listened. The Council has formed a board committee that will re-examine its guiding statements, core values, policies and systems pertinent to accreditation, among others. Um, Thai Online is also committed to amplify diverse voices. And I think empowering, that's very encouraging, that's very futurist and forward thinking for our organization to really confront some of these difficult conversations. We also have the privilege to engage in ask hard questions to, to Teachers College. Um, I recently attended the July Writing Institute and Teachers College, as you know, are the authors and developers of highly respected reading and writing workshops, to which they responded with grace and humility and genuine commitment to further actions. We all have the capacity for transformative actions and all encompassing forms and manifestations of justice. Particularly in the teaching of reading and writing, that's where you see some of those areas where you look into social and linguistic justice. Um, house in the units of study, for example, Learning communities would, would have to examine and unpack narratives by challenging biases, assumptions, and beliefs beyond the who, what, when, and what happens next types of questions when we, when we teach reading and writing. My, my belief is that hopefully we can deepen those conversations with children. Readers need to, ex to be examining whose stories are we telling, whose identities and narratives have been amplified, dignified, othered, and silenced. And why is that so? So really the kids engaging in that understanding of the power imbalance of the inequity of the narratives. What forms and consequences of oppression might we need to deeply uncover? What aspects of class, race, and gender in all its intersectionalities are these stories rooted on? And with age-appropriate frameworks, mindsets, and dispositions for thinking, it would never be too early to teach equity and justice to children across the teacher's college learning architecture. As well, moving forward, 
students will not only intellectualize their understanding of the narratives of the oppressed, but also develop actions that will really compel people to act and courageously rally people to change. When children read diverse books with non-white characters, they are sometimes left at the level of sense-making, connecting, sympathizing, empathizing, responding, and writing about it. And these are all fantastic cognitive behaviors. But these are fundamental and essentials. But often we stop there. The challenge or problem with our place of comfort is that we see ourselves sticking off the box by having read aloud books with BIPOC characters. We've filled our libraries with, with books that do have um, Black, Indigenous, people of color, host country books. However, these are safe and, and, and comfortable. After children and teachers have read aloud and analyzed the narratives, we thought we have been inclusive, diverse, equitable in our work. That is, that is the beginning, but that's not enough. There is more compelling need to further work in teaching and providing anti-racism, anti-Black frameworks for teachers and educators and school leaders to lead in the unpacking of the intersectional injustice found in stories, broadly shown in the triumvirate of class, race, and gender. And also to explicitly teach our educators, including that includes myself, to reflect on our own biases and racism and have these courageous conversations embedded in professional development. I think the systemic review of Teachers College Unit of Studies literature will support in redeeming identities of BIPOC children who benefit tremendously in the narratives that TC amplifies, but may feel isolated, unseen, disconnected from it. There is indeed a momentum of genuine reflection happening across the world. And many of these courageous conversations are living what Maya Angelou had said, when you know better, you do better. And I recognize that um, you know, you're, you're maybe a month or, or further away from getting back to school. And I, I think the thing that's difficult is, you know, it's so easy for us to sort of have that tunnel vision and think, okay, you know, we're hearing about the movement. So many of our peers and our, our friends are engaging in the reflection that you just described. But I also know that there are people that just, they aren't. Um, uh, you know, they, they either think that this is trendy or they think it's reactionary and you know I, I feel like i sound cynical right now but i just you know that, that's been the experience that i've has had as an educator is sometimes i think okay great yes everybody is interested in in doing better but there are also some people that think it is already good enough uh there are people that feel like they have to uh, defend the canon you know you, you brought up this idea of reviewing different units and thinking about the books that we have in our classrooms and the ways that we explore them. But, you know, I've, I've had those arguments with people that feel like there is already a definition of genius and we have to teach the geniuses. And it's just a coincidence that they're all cis, straight, white, dead men. Um, you know, so I'm, I'm kind of wondering if you have any examples of some questions, especially as an instructional coach, um, you know, you get to, you know, enjoy working with a variety of people. Do you have any questions in mind that you're hoping to bring back to campus? Um, you know, and again, just thinking, 
hopefully lots of your colleagues are thinking about this, but there might be some who are not. And I'm wondering if you have one or two questions that you're hoping might spark a dialogue once you're, once you're back to school. It really goes back, I think, to the question of whose stories are we amplifying and whose stories are we silencing intentionally and unintentionally. We are truly, the, the narratives that are, that we are exploring in, in different contexts in international school do not necessarily reflect the stories of diverse peoples around the world. And so when you think about, when you think about gender, I don't see books yet that truly dig deep into the intersectionality of, of and the visibility of our LGBTQI plus um, communities and individuals. So for me, those are some of the questions that we have. How much are we pushing and courageously asking those questions within our organizations? Yeah, and I, I think, uh, you know, certainly with older students in the IBDP, looking at language and literature and thinking about, you know, look at who controls the different publishing houses and, you know, just what do you, what do you see? What do you think? What do you wonder? Um, you know, about what they amplify and who is sort of at the top helm of some of those publishing houses. Um, I, I just, I, I reread a book called The View from Flyover Country. Uh, mm -hmm. it's, a, it's a series of essays and a lot of it kind of looks at why the election of, of Donald Trump wasn't surprising to a lot of people. And there's a great essay in there about journalism and how it is so difficult now to become a journalist that, you know, it is sort of, if you, if you have a place of privilege, that's a field that you can pursue. If you don't, you're sort of going to, you're going to be blockaded off because you have to be able to afford taking on an unpaid internship for a significant amount of time uh, you know and then of course even when you are being paid you might not be uh, being paid enough and sort of what that does to really just you know kind of it's a gated community and how many different industries are sort of that that gated community and also I, I think especially with children's lit just the emotional work that some people have to do in recognizing this favorite author that you have, there's some problems with them. Doesn't make you a bad person, but you know, like let's let's sort of dig into what's problematic about that writer and let's think about the choice that we have of who else we might be using in our classroom. But I, I think some people have that reluctance to be willing to address the fact that the education that they received as a child might have some issues with it, you know? Um, and I, I, I think I really love how much you've talked about questioning. And I, I think the longer you are in education, the better you get at that questioning. And I'm wondering for the incoming generation of educators, if you have any advice to them when it comes to doing that work of questioning or, um, you know, enabling them to sort of see hard conversations as a necessary component of the job? Um, I think it's very important for new teachers to come in with critical consciousness in our educational system. Um, we were used to, we were taught before in, in our bachelor's, you know, in our, in our teacher training to really dig deep into strategies of teaching, into um, 
pedagogy and all of that, but there was really not much of a preparation when it comes to understanding systemic change. So understanding how incremental change can lead to fundamental change. Now we also understand that individual teachers in schools have part of that responsibility to make changes. So the teaching of, of let's say reading and writing according to their unique context. But systemic change is necessary because the things that have oppressed and isolated live and breathe in a system and its systemic essence. It's very similar to what you mentioned, Trisha, about journalism. Those are, those are the prime example of who holds the, the key to the publication houses and how much have they isolated some of the stories that are essential, the stories that are genuine, the stories that are authentic, that people and children should hear all across the world. And so this is by no means a criticism, considering the incredible work that organizations such as Teachers College is committed to nurture children's learning as they live rich and literate lives. But by fundamentally reviewing the content, context and cultures of systems, as for example, as in Teachers College units of study, that many schools have almost dogmatically consumed, can be only transform pedagogy and approaches to make it inclusive and anti-racist. So the suggestion really that was presented was to explicitly teach and embed frameworks, dispositions and mindsets within the units of study for teachers to learn and teach by default and by design. As well, when systems are in place with narrow filters for racial equity detours and excuses, teachers will be compelled to be uncomfortable to learn and grow. And this is by no means undermining educators and schools voice, choice and autonomy. And I, I'm wondering, um, you know, and again, I think for a lot of people, it seems like the teaching of dispositions, frameworks and mindsets completely makes sense. And I, I know that, you know, when we think school to school, there are some schools that are doing that. And, you know, as you said, there are other schools that they haven't had the time or the headspace or the resources to help provoke thinking about doing that. Um, and I, you know, I also recognize even comparing school to school, but comparing within a school, I'm sure you will have some teachers that, you know, they are ready to just sort of jump in and, and do that work and start doing that. They would know where to start. But for a teacher who's thinking, okay, Joel, yeah, I, I, I like what you're saying. I agree. I think the, the lit or the language classroom, there's space for these dispositions and mindsets and frameworks but I don't know how, what that would actually look like in a given lesson. So could you just sort of give us an example of here's what that might look like um, inside, of a, inside of a classroom? Because I think some people hear that and then they might think, oh, are you indoctrinating kids with what they should believe and you know, trying to just sort of um, you know, give them a quote unquote political agenda. Like what does that classroom conversation look and sound like? Can you, can you think of an example of, of what we might hear or see? What comes to mind to me is that in, in every disposition, in every cognitive behavior that we have, there are specific well-intentioned questions that we can frame that will challenge some of the books that we have. So for instance, you would be asking whose perspectives are we, are we examining? Whose values are we, are we valuing? Whose beliefs are these? And how different are they from ours? And how, how might some of these power imbalance, perpetuated 
oppression of a specific group. And so there are so many wonderful literature that are, that are in our libraries. And I think digging deep into that, going beyond the, our basic comprehension questions to really elevating those levels of question within our, within our classroom. So it's not only just about looking at it from a lens of indoctrination, but really looking at it from the lens of being critically conscious about the questions that we ask in relation to the values that we have. Yeah, you know, and I, I kind of think summer is a, an interesting time and space to informally practice some of that. And this is gonna sound really lowbrow, but I'm thinking of even just you know, your Netflix viewing at home. Last night, my, my wife and I watched a new action film called <laughs> The Old Guard. And mm -hmm. it, it is, uh, it's directed by a woman. It's starring Charlize Theron. And it's sort of like these superheroes. But there are two superheroes who are gay. And my wife and I were talking about how transgressive that that seemed and how it was sort of surprising and shocking and even just that question of okay in the narrative in the representation of you know traditional archetypes like your traditional superhero archetype is anything here borderline shocking you know and I, I kind of think you know not that I'm a huge superhero movie buff but like very often you kind of okay, I understand what this person's motivation is. I can probably predict a few things that they will do or say. And just looking at some of those narratives and, and thinking, is anything surprising here? Or does this kind of feel like copy, paste, copy, paste, copy, paste, you know, running back decades? Um, and, 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 you know, as you said, just kind of questioning who benefits from the copy, paste, and how do we like capital w e benefit from actually breaking that that cycle um you know what are, what are some of the, the benefits when we when we do that um and now when you said that one trisha it, it really makes me think now about the different things that we we expose our children to i'm thinking about not only i'm so focused right now with with children's literature because i think that's a context where i'm in but then even looking at the at the media and the commercials and advertising that we see all around the world, whether in social media or in television, um, it, it really is a single story, as what Chimamanda Adichie had mentioned before. Even even the posters that you see in 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 hotels in different parts in Asia, you know, when you see a person of color with this who is sort of giving services to to a white person, mm -hmm. that already in itself is is an isolating, a perpetuation of a specific stereotype. And when kids see that one, my thinking with their own impressionable minds, it makes me wonder about what might be they thinking, especially children of color, black children, indigenous children. Do I see myself in those literature? Do I see myself in those posters? Do I see myself um, and my stories in those, um, publications and in those advertising and, and so it really is to me it really is a child protection issue it's really a well-being issue because I feel that that is identity shaping and and we are more than ever compelled right now to really dig deep into 
our role and responsibility as teachers to be identity researchers and identity experts. There is a person, um, Daniel Wigner from Hong Kong, who has really dug deep into some of the work on identity, identity experts, for teachers to become identity experts. And I think it is worth looking into some of the work that he has been, he has been doing. Oh, great, great. Thank you for that. I'll, I'll make sure that we, we link to that in the show notes. And I really appreciate that you frame it as, you know, a, a, a child safety issue. I couldn't agree more. Um, you know, I'll have to double check this, but I was reading recently that something like 46% of people who identify as transgender have attempted to commit suicide. And I do think that idea of the types of stories that we tell about transgender people have so much to do with that. Um, you know, again, I'm kind of outing myself as spending a lot of time on, on Netflix, but the documentary on Netflix, that's about um, representation of transgender characters in the media is really eye-opening and the story the single story that we have told and how absolutely damaging it is. Um, there, you know, there's a little bit of hope in terms of we're seeing better representation, but we still have so far to go. Myself being a cisgender gay individual, I'm realizing that within the community, within the LGBTQI plus community, there is isolation and discrimination within the, within the community in itself, because there's also ladderized who, who gets in first into that liberation. And I think Marsha P. Johnson and Sylvia Rivera, who, who pioneered gay, queer and gay liberation movement, has never been fully liberated in the community with their transgendered um, siblings. And I think until all of us, like what they said, until all of us are free, we're not really completely liberated individually. And I think there are so many obstacles, habits, structures in school that hold us back from getting there. Uh, and I, I think, you know, this conversation is about being able to spark that dialogue. I really liked the, the phrase that you used earlier, understanding that incremental change can and often does lead to fundamental change. But again, in, in order to kind of get into that lane, we do need to be able to have conversations that so often we refer to as difficult rather than necessary. And, you know, even sometimes then are framed as, well, this is too political to discuss. Um, have you been able to sort of spot or, or better identify any of those obstacles or habits or structures in schools that you're saying, you know what, we need to more carefully watch out for this? Or if you are finding that, you know, X is happening in your school, be mindful of, of what that is preventing and, and how that might be an obstacle? To me, my, my, my idea is that I think schooling is political. As, as individuals, we have really different st struggles in climbing the ladders of equity and equality, especially when we frame it with class, race, and gender. We also know that lived experiences and human pain can never be quantified and are intersectional these unique lived experiences also vary in context, individually and collectively. So as an individual, we may choose to overtly and covertly express and live our politics. And so as I reflect on your question, and with some deep-seated references, makes me also question myself, am I being political in asking these hard questions? But I see politics as a civic responsibility. 
it is an individual responsibility that contributes to a collective growth and collective identity. Individuals are a crucial part of politics, whether we like it or not. There's no choice to that. The impact and the implications circle back to us. The etymology of the word politics is citizens, as we know, people, it's about us. So by default and by design, educational systems and schools with people at its beating heart are political centers because people and their identities and values and culture and fundamental beliefs are the nucleus of schools, which are fundamental pillars these political centers are sustained by human relationships, which are nourished by interactions, love, shared aspirations, as well as a collective courage, pains, and tragedies, which are all unadulterated essences of our humanity. Now onto the political essence of education. Human interactions are political because they are architectured within power structures and systems dynamics. We see that in school, we see that in government, we see that in, in different organizations, we see that in media, we see that in journalism and publications. And so we have a responsibility in schools and in all the other communities that I've mentioned to nurture individuals' moral compass and critical consciousness. We nurture critical thinking and ethical living, the ability to understand diverse perspectives, to understand causation, to recognize systemic patterns in order to develop sustainable transformative actions the co-creation of knowledge and narratives, analyzing and understanding its theories, how, how it is documented and perpetuated, the narratives we choose to tell and the stories we choose to silence. All of these have greater implications to the survival and sustenance of human life and its dignity. And these are our responsibilities in schools. And these are all political acts. In education, however, um, we seem to have a collective consciousness of being apolitical. I don't know if you agree with that on your other people might agree on that, but educators have been unintentionally trained to be apolitical. We live and work in school cultures that are inherently apolitical because my feel is that, and my hunch is that we have limited our scope and tapered our perceptions of politics. We sometimes limit our context and definition of politics within the web of political framework often associated with government and government relations. And I see that in the case of international schools, our relationship with host countries. And so I also understand that our response and relationship to this politics comes from a place of carefully navigating and understanding our power, our place, our space, and that political web within a foreign realm. The importance of nurturing global citizens who will take the lead in future civic leadership, who are deeply engaged in their understanding of their power and privilege is a political act. As educators, we shouldn't stifle our authentic voice to political ideas and actions that matter to our children and the adults in our community, which has profound implications to child protection and well-being, resulting in the shaping of identities as well as the protection of human rights and dignity. We have the power in our schools within the realm of an expansive political framework to make decisions and act in ways that can address diversity, equity, inclusion, and justice. And you asked me as well as earlier, Trisha, about how does that look like within the school? And I think I am very fortunate and, and I think this is a place of privilege to, to be working in an international school currently who really has been genuinely committed and honest from the leadership team all the way down to teachers and individuals to really look into what can we do better? We started it out with, with a conversation 
um, a flattened hierarchy of con type of conversation. We sat down in a circle, introduced ourselves, who we were coming from. There's no high level documentation that we, we started with, but really to, to just sit down and talk to each other. Why, why this matters? Why, why we need to reflect on this? And what can we do to make it better? Um, and I, I think that's huge because I, I think it's, it sounds so simple, this idea of a school asking, what can we do better? But I, I do think, you know, there are schools that ask that question and they continue to ask it. And there are schools that say, what we are doing is already great. And I, I kind of think, you know, there's probably a, a series of sub questions that you could put together as an audit to check, you know, when we ask that question, do we really mean it? Because as you said, you know, we had time to sit down and discuss it. So that's, that's a component of it too, in terms of how much time, if your school is saying, we want to know how we can do better, well, how much time are they really providing to answer that? Because, you know, it is often not necessarily an easy, an easy question. And I'm, I'm also super happy that, you know, it does sound like your school is incredibly supportive. And you mentioned you've worked at a few different schools. So for the next question, if you want to answer from a composite or if you want to think about um, any of the schools, you know, we often hear or, you know, I, I've had school leaders say to me, bring your whole self to work. You know, it's kind of a, a cliche now, this idea of the employer telling the employee, please bring your whole self to work because, you know, kind of thing. Well, I, I kind of have to do that, but um, you know, when we when we tell someone to do that, do we ever stop and say, "Well, why might that not be comfortable for some people to do that?" And I'm wondering, in your experience, to what extent do you think teachers have been able to do that to bring their whole selves to work? When it comes to um authenticity is important we can be we can only do so much of the work that we do with children and with people and individuals and families within our school when we are authentic with ourselves and we speak with our authentic voice i have been a fan of margaret wheatley um, and she capped her books one of her books with really powerful insights that can guide us in in bringing ourselves to this whole the idea of authenticity. There is, she mentioned, there's no power greater than a community discovering what it cares about. Mm. And she also compelled us to ask, what's possible and not what's wrong? So we keep asking those questions. She also added, notice what you care about. Assume that many others share your dreams. Be intrigued by the differences you hear. Trust that meaningful conversations can change your world. Rely on human goodness and stay together. And I think those are the words that resonated to me because it humanizes the work that we do at school. Oftentimes we get a lot of, you know, we've got power systems and power structures and, and not in a bad way, but they are, they're the ones that are inherently part of the operations of, of schooling. But then, we need to further humanize it by some of the questions that we can ask um, within our school conversations. Um, and it is happening. It is happening in, in various capacities. And I think what I'm suggesting is that let's further deepen those conversations with, with honoring our vulnerability, 
honoring our authentic voice and, and turning, is what Mar Margaret would, Wheatley would say, turning to each other. Yes, and I, I, I'm really, I love that you brought that up because I do think sometimes it is easy and I, I think I have, I've taken this shortcut at times of, of feeling cynical of, well, will this conversation make a difference? You know, is it, is it just a waste of my time? And remembering that transformative conversations are possible and sometimes, you know, it might not happen in that first dialogue, but that first dialogue mm -hmm. might be the bridge to a follow-up conversation. Um, and I, I think as educators, if we, if we don't really believe in the, in the power of conversation, um, I, I don't know, I, maybe, it's, maybe it's time to take a break from what we're doing because it's so essential to our work. And I'm wondering if you have any other, you've given us so many great recommendations. Do you have any other resources or recommendations that fellow educators might want to explore should they wish to also continue to try to transform hard conversation into a framework of thinking of it as necessary conversation? Turning to each other, Margaret Wheatley, hard conversations, Jennifer Abrams, um, better conversations from Jim Knight, Dare to Lead, Brene Brown, and The Power of Why, Simon Sinek. Five of these have become um, really enriching and, and eye-opening to me when it comes to the work that we do in schools in initiating conversations that are challenging and courageous. But it is never too early to begin with our youngest learners. We have taught them to accept and tolerate people who are different from them, but not to intentionally understand the systemic injustices. For example, they're becoming more woke in understanding the, ex understanding the expansive sexual orientations and gender identity and expression but not learn about the power of Marsha P. Johnson and Sylvia Rivera, pioneers of gay and queer liberation and their courage to stand up against injustices. Those are examples of difficult conversations. Those are stories that need to be told in, in, in conversations in schools. And depending on where you are in the world, I can imagine that is too political. And schools will have to make those courageous decisions in, in, in doing that. We teach our children to be kind and caring and friendly and nice to each other, but these do not necessarily transfer to standing up for injustices to ensure restorative justice. Um, if there are listeners who would love to just sort of have the opportunity that I did to tap into your wisdom a bit, uh, is there any place online that they can go to connect with you? I am on Twitter, um, Joel Jr. Liaban. Um, J-O-E-L-J-R-L-L-A-B-A-N. And that's my Twitter handle. And I look forward to, to engaging um, everybody with, with the different conversations um, along the way. And I look forward to, to some questions, to some um, sort of reactions and comments that will help me in my reflection, as well as stretch my thinking as we move forward in, in the spirit of partnership, in the spirit of shared reflection, and in the spirit of continuous activism for all of us. Thank you so much for your insight, for your reminders about how important that work of reflection is. And also thank you for pointing us to so many stellar resources today. I really, really appreciate your time, Joel. Trisha, thank you so much. This has really been a, a wonderful experience and I look forward to chatting with you more in, in different contexts and in different um, communities. Thank Absolutely. you and take care of yourself and everybody.